good evening, everybody. My name is uh, Professor Michael Cox at the, of the London School of Economics, the Department of International Relations, uh, co-director of IDEAS, the Centre for Strategy and Diplomacy, and in the context of this evening, uh, former chair of the European Consortium of Political Research who are sponsoring this lecture uh, this evening. I will come back in a few moments to introduce the speakers for this evening, but the first thing I want to do in my honour and privilege to uh, invite the current chair of ECPR to say something about the Capital Lecture Series. This is Professor, good friend, colleague, Luciano, Professor Luciano Bardi from the University of Pisa. Luciano, over to you. Thank you, Mick. Ladies and gentlemen, colleagues, it gives me a great pleasure to welcome you to this evening's event. I wish to thank the LSE and Mick Cox uh, for having uh, put together this year's Capital Lecture, which is the second of a series, the first one having been in Madrid last year under the aegis of the ECPR. For those of you who might not know the ECPR, it is the European Consortium for Political Research. The general purpose of the consortium uh, are, and uh, the general purposes of the consortium are to promote the development of political science in Europe in particular by fostering collaboration between universities and other European institutions active in political research, teaching, and training. We fulfill these objectives through a diverse range of activities, including conferences, workshops, summer schools, journal and book publications. The Capital Lecture Series is distinctive and a new venture for the ECPR because it represents our attempt to uh, I would say reach out beyond academe to engage with other expressions of intellectual culture and society in Europe around themes of real world relevance. The Madrid Capital Lecture last year was focused on an engaging debate on metropolitan governance. And this year we are delighted that Mick Cox has put together a roundtable of such distinguished speakers and experts on a theme of such paramount importance to the world today. And there can be no doubt that London and the LSE are the most appropriate venue to hold such an event. So my thanks again to the LSE and Mick Cox and of course to our speakers for agreeing to bring uh, expertise, their expertise, to the table tonight. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, uh, <coughs> Luciana. Uh, for over 60 years, uh, following the, the end of uh, World War II, 1945, uh, it was fashionable, uh, at least uh, on the Marxist left, uh, to assume that capitalism was always in crisis. Indeed, better still, would one day finally collapse uh, as an economic 
system. Uh, but waiting for the collapse of capitalism was a bit like waiting for Godot in the Samuel Beckett play. It never turned up. The great crash never happened. Now, of course, a crash of sorts did occur, a pretty spectacular one, to be sure. But it happened in the wrong place and to the wrong system. For it wasn't capitalism that was consigned into the flames, into that wonderful proverbial dustbin of history, but actually existing communism between 1989 and 1991. To make matters even worse, the new post-communist elites in Eastern and Central Europe seemed even keener on the market than their one-time capitalist adversaries. Even in formerly communist China, globalism and globalization seemed to point the way forward. It was all very confusing from the point of view of the critics. Though from the point of view of capitalism's many defenders, very satisfactory indeed. The alternative had been seen off. History, to use a phrase, had come to an end, concluding with a victory of unabashed economic liberalism. The world could be left to the market under the direction of its master American narrator, Alan Greenspan, the master of the universe. Then the wheels quite literally began to come off, or so it seemed, slowly at first in 2007, then more rapidly during 2008, and then completely, it seemed, again on September the 15th, 2008, when Lehman Brothers collapsed or was allowed to go under. Crisis turned into panic. The banking system started to buckle. The end looked nigh. So what does all this mean? How should we read the past two years? How should we understand the collapse of Lehman's? Where are we now? And what does the future hold? To reflect on these issues tonight... I have assembled what I think you would agree is a great team. Will Hutton, in the middle there, prolific author, outstanding journalist, and I have to add, a governor of the LSE. Secondly, Professor Andrew Gamble of the University of Cambridge, one of the best analysts of British politics over the past 30 years and recent author of Spectre of the Feast, The Politics of the Global Recession. And then, at the far end of the table, Professor Danny Quar of the LSE, a very good friend and colleague here at the school, in much demand as a policy advisor around the world, and an economist who has thought deeper than most about what this crisis might mean for the balance of power in the global economy. Will Hutton will go first and reflect more generally on the origins of this crisis. Andrew Gamble will then follow and then last but no, by no means least, Danny Quayle will conclude. So with no further ado, I'll bring on Will Hutton. Will, over to you. I'll keep an eye on the, on the clock. Yeah. Um, Lehman, uh, 12 months on. By the way, welcome. It's a great... I've done this, uh, the third of these... Uh, um, uh, discussions since the crisis began and it's always astonishingly well attended giving up 
a midweek evening to discuss the highfalutin antics of uh, the shadow banking system. Congratulations to you all. I hope I managed to say something that, I that interests you. Um, and I hope that um, we all, you know, profit. And I'm looking forward to what Danny and Andrew got to say. Um, Lehman 12 months on, I think the, the really important thing about the collapse of Lehman, and by the way, um, the weekend in which um, Lehman collapsed um, was probably more serious because at the same time, and actually one of the reasons it collapsed arguably was the lack of bandwidth. Uh, the New York Fed and the Fed just hadn't got the bandwidth to deal with the crisis at AIG, um, the United States' biggest insurance company, and its credit default swap book that had emerged that same weekend. Uh, and of course, uh, Merrill Lynch. Uh, I mean, the deal was the Bank of America were going to buy Lehman, and uh, Merrill Lynch snuck in there on the Saturday morning and said, no, buy us. And that seemed a better deal to Bank of America than buying Lehman. And suddenly it was just Nomura and Barclays Bank uh, in the market for this. And at the same time, you were worried about a credit, swap, a credit default swap book, which actually had AIG not had the $880 billion worth of recapitalization, could have brought the world banking system down. And that was all happening the same weekend. And actually, you know, we've all got so much bandwidth, and the dozen or so people who had to make the calls uh, didn't have enough bandwidth to really organize the rescue for Lehman. Um, and it's, uh, but it was an accident waiting to happen. Um, I slightly disagree um, with people who say that um, there's a kind of, there's a story of global imbalances that was the kind of underlying kind of backdrop to all of this. My view is, is that the shadow banking system, which um, got going um, with the Basel I Accords in 1988, um, would sooner or later, uh, it had embedded in it um, the capacity to construct a kind of debt pyramid, and a kind of Ponzi debt pyramid following Hyman Minsky. And sooner or later, um, with, had there been imbalances or not, um, it was going to get to a point where it would implode. Um, I think the, the carry trade from Japan, uh, the buildup of China's foreign exchange reserves, the OPEC surpluses, uh, all of that certainly created a pool of liquidity uh, uh, which actually um, permitted more structured investment vehicles um, to be sold faster. But if you look at the graphs, um, they were growing pretty fast anyway. Um, I, I think this was a crisis firmly minted um, within um, the Western banking system, and in particular by New York and London. Um, and uh, the, the, the important point about Lehman's is it brought that secondary, that shadow banking system down, that, well, that New York-London shadow banking system down. And here's the big point. Um, it can't be resurrected. And the the um, principles upon which it's based, I'll try to explain in the next few minutes, are just unresurrectable both intellectually and actually the tradable collateral uh, and indeed the system of um, credit default stops that allegedly um, insured many of these vehicles against default, it's all gone west. And here is the really fundamental point. The IMS says there's $9 trillion worth of, um, $9 trillion worth, I'll repeat that, $9 trillion worth of support worldwide uh, for the Western banking system. Of that half, $4.5 trillion worth, are guarantees in the interbank market and repo markets. If there weren't $4.5 trillion worth of guarantees in those markets, the haircut on the collateral that's offered daily, weekly, monthly, um, for the exchange of very large sums of money 
would be so large, uh, the credit markets would still be frozen. The credit markets were still frozen, we'd now be in a, in a depression. It's your guarantees provided by uh, Western taxpayers, in particular in Britain and America, it's your guarantees that have substituted for the collateral that used to be at the base of the shadow banking system to get the whole thing back on its feet. And that's why the bonuses that, the, that at Goldman and, and, and J.P. Morgan Chase uh, and, uh, frankly, within the, within the uh, banks in the U.K. with very substantial government stakes are so outrageous. That is money that they couldn't have um, unless the guarantees were there. And, of course, the recapitalization was there and unless the liquidity was there. Um, the governor of the Bank of England on Tuesday night um, made, this, um, made this remark about this Churchillian remark. You know, never in, the, in financial affairs uh, has so much uh, been owed by so few to so many in exchange for so little reform. It's a well-made remark. I agree with it completely. Um, uh, he also went on to say that the moral hazard of um, those guarantees permitting a small number of people to make stunning sums of money is perhaps you know, the greatest we've ever experienced in modern times. I, mean, I think, again, that's a correct statement. And actually, it's an open question about what we're going to do with this um, shadow banking system. Um, and I'll, and I'll, because um, there is a, a, a very lively debate between um, the government, um, who basically, as far as I can see, want to put it back on its feet, sell the stakes, and walk away from it, um, and uh, you know it's back to status quo ante with a, with a bit more capital and a bit more regulation. I think that's where Alistair Darling sits in this, and uh, do the minimum you can within the G20 rules on bank bonuses. I think that's, uh, that's where they are. Um, and indeed, actually, um, I hope this is from the Treasury in the room. Um, because I, I, whoever the Treasury officials are who are advising Alistair Darling um, to say uh, on, tu uh, on Tuesday and on Wednesday in response to the Governor's speech that actually, and breaking up um, the banks as he advised, and I'll come to that in a minute, um, was purposeless because um, uh, look at Northern Rock. It was just a regional northern building society that got itself into trouble, and what difference would that have made? Showed a level of such deep ignorance, such deep ignorance about the emergence of the shadow banking system and the way in which um, building societies like Northern Rock were exploiting it, that it's just breathtaking. When Northern Rock went bust, its leverage ratio was 50 to 1. That's about the, that UBS had a higher leverage ratio. Goldman Sachs and Bear Stearns had lower leverage ratios. And it financed two-fifths of all new lending in the British mortgage market in the first six months of 2007 entirely from selling residential mortgage-backed securities, securitizing them in a special purpose vehicle in the Channel Islands and for tax avoidance reasons and protecting it with credit default swaps. It was a real live actor in the casino it was because it was a member of the casino from which Mervyn King wanted to separate it um, that actually got itself into trouble. And to stand there as Chancellor of the Exchequer and say, and this would have made no difference to a regional conservative building society like Northern Rock, you know, you just wonder who's advising him and how he can say such a thing. It's just, uh, and they, they are going to say that it's factually wrong to say that actually the kind of separation that Mervyn King uh, outlines would have made any difference. I, mean, I don't know again how you can say that. Let's just examine the shadow um, banking market, this, this shadow banking market, because I do think 
that um, its emergence and what we do about the legacy of it you know, is the number one political and economic policy issue in the world today. Uh, it, um, uh, it certainly ranks alongside, I mean, it doesn't rank alongside climate change, obviously, but in, in terms of its imminent threat, it probably exceeds climate change. Um, and as long as there's, and as long as um, there's not a, you know, an attempt to uh, bomb the Iranians, and uh, I think it's out of hand in the Middle East, it probably exceeds actually the dangers there. But it's of that order. There's 23 trillion dollars worth of securitized assets parked in tax havens. I'll repeat that: 23 trillion dollars worth of structured investment vehicles parked in special purpose vehicles in offshore tax havens, the value of which is indeterminate. Who, which were insured by um, credit default swaps and were underpinned by collateral, the value of which nobody really knows. And indeed only have any value because of um, $9 trillion worth of, of Western taxpayer guarantees, of half of which are these guarantees I've already mentioned, uh, uh, to, uh, to collateral into bank markets. I mean, it is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I, and I completely understand. I mean, if you understand a tenth of it, um, I mean, the amazing thing is, is that people like Adair Turner and Mervyn King aren't even angrier in public than they are. Um, and uh, you know, the, 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 it was allowed over a, over a 20-year period, starting with Basel I in 1988, where the kind of deal was really uh, by the international. It was. Uh, you probably don't know. But there's not time to explain. But you know, the Basel I Accord grew out of an accord between New York and London. Uh, in the uh, immediately after Big Bang, which allowed American investment banks to, to take over um, uh, British stockbrokers and, and jobbers, so they could do in London what they couldn't do in America, which they could they could not they could break Glass Steagall in London, and caused profound concern uh, because actually Mrs. Thatcher and Cecil Parkinson had actually pulled the rug away from Glass Steagall in attempts to regulate uh, banking in the states. So the American regulators got in touch um, with the British regulators immediately, and we did a joint accord um, in the first few months of 87 after Big Bang, in which the two countries worked together to say, well, given this is happening, and as it has happened as a, as a reality, what we're going to have to do is get British and American banks to hold more capital. And um, we did this accord, and then we got the Japanese to join in, and that became the basis of Basel II and the deal, and the Basel I. And the deal was basically, as long as you banks hold, hold, hold capital, um, and as long as you um, ha uh, put your assets in so-called risk buckets and weight them so that you have the appropriate capital, you can basically do whatever you like. And, you know, like the blue touch paper, and they did do whatever they liked. Um, the first, the first um, securitized um, um, structured investment vehicles, CDOs, were issued in the A1990s. Uh, and uh, the build-up is just uh, it was was just extraordinary. A lot of and a lot of the bankers, of course, were behaving in, incredibly irresponsibly. I mean, those of you with long memories will remember Hammersmith and Fulham um, exposed to six billion pounds worth of um, foreign exchange derivatives. Others of you will remember Procter and Gamble suing Bankers Trust for um, 190 million dollars worth of derivatives that it was sold, to which it said Bankers Trust had misrepresented um, what it was actually selling to Procter and Gamble, and so on. The bankers were pulling the eyes over um, their, their local authority and their corporate clients and flogging them stuff, uh, pretending actually that risks were hedged when in fact they weren't. Then of course there was the collapse of long-term capital management um, in 1998 
um, using um, the, the kind of uh, theory for pricing its options um, that had been developed by Myron Scholes, who won the Nobel Prize the previous year for option pricing. Um, it turned out that actually um, they, they, they had organized their portfolio so that on a diversified basis, saying that there was you know, 14, only it was, it was a risk 14 standard deviations out that actually um, Russian bonds um, would go um, down at the same time as American bonds went up. Well, in the, in, the, in the wake of the Asian financial crisis, it turned out that um, everyone sold their Russian bonds and bought American bonds, and actually it wiped out, um, it wiped out uh, long-term capital management, who had a $3.5 billion bailout by Wall Street's finest, organized by the New York Fed. Um, all this should have um, led to storm warnings by the regulators. But um, remember um, that the bankers had the politicians in their pocket. You know, whilst, even whilst long-term capital management was going down, proving actually that many of the theorems upon which the of efficient market theory and all the rest of it, um, that uh, Sandy Weil, the man running Travelers Group, was um, la deep doling out lots and lots of largesse to American policymakers in the Senate and, and uh, the House to pass the repeal of Glass-Steagall so he could reverse Travelers Corporation, which he ran into Citigroup, thus making himself $300 million dollars. Yep, $300 million off that deal. Um, and, of course, Hank Paulson was on the phone in 2004 to the SEC arguing that the leverage cap, which would have been 12 to 1 um, from all, all broker-dealers, that's another way of calling investment bankers, should be lifted. Uh, and the SEC took 55 minutes to lift it, and the campaign contributions from Goldman Sachs to the Republican Party were generous indeed, and, and Mr. Bush got back. And uh, with that leverage cap lifted, the, sh the shadow banking just went into turbocharge. Um, people, I, I always think there's a degree of innocence about this. Um, if you, um, Thomas Philippon, a Reshef of two fine economists, American economists, have charted um, bankers' pay relative to the average since we really began to create the shadow banking system in the early 1980s, it starts to really go off in 1988. It goes up by 40% relative to average wages by, by 2008. And of course, at the top, um, Payment and bonuses for people at the top were routinely, you know, three, five, ten million dollars, and and what started off as a as for rewarding people for exceptional effort became a sense of entitlement. So you have the amazing, amazing business of the 377 men and women who ran um, the shop, as they call it, in London. Ex Drexel Burnham Lambert, they were selling credit default swaps out of AIG's uh, for AIG. Um, they got, they shared between them, after AIG had gone bust, after AIG had gone bust, after it had got $180 billion from the U.S. federal government, they shared out a bonus pool of $220 million, 500000 each, for bankrupting the company they worked. Merrill Lynch, um, in, 19, in 2008, uh, uh, the same weekend that it went to, that Lehman's went down, Merrill Lynch got, went to Bank of America. The bonus pool for Merrill Lynch uh, that same year was $3.6 billion. 700 Merrill Lynch employees got bonuses of $1 million or more the year it went bust. Uh, that was the kind of thing you confront in the financial markets, my friends, and which came out of um, this kind of light-touch regulated um, Basel I, Basel II story. All you need to do is to carry the capital. 
All you need to do is to risk weight your assets and you can do whatever you like and will like touch regulate you. In fact, Gordon Brown established the Financial Services Authority as a statutory uh, trade association in my view. Because um, in the... In the in the, in, the, uh, in the rules of the, of the, of the Financial Services Authority uh, uh, is that it must promote the city's competitiveness, cannot um, ex-ante uh, um, uh, prevent the launch of uh, any financial innovation. How about that, eh? So if you, want to do, if you want to write a really dodgy credit default swap, the FSA couldn't hang about it by statute. And of course, I know I can introduce you. I can't, I'm, they're now embarrassed about it, but I know a number of senior uh, bankers in the city who have on their CV that they wrote the terms of the FSA. So when you think about what took place, you mustn't just think it was the product of a free market ideology and efficient markets, or just a story of banker greed. It was also a story of actually politicians co-producing this with the bankers, this cathedral of um, debt, the core of which was um, a repo market in which um, collateral was offered against cash. That cash then invested in structured investment vehicles that could be then lent back in the, in, in the repo market to, under rehypothecation to build up a debt pyramid. And, you know, we all surfed along in the credit that was generated. I mean, it did generate a lot of credit, a lot of asset price inflation, a lot of consumption growth in Britain and America. And, of course, the investment bankers themselves, and I guess Danny will make a reference to this, um, were, were big change agents in globalization. And they were, because um, the savings did pour in from these global imbalances, which actually accelerated the whole process of, of, um, of, 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 of credit um, generation. Um, it was very, very pro-cyclical. Um, Bill White, Chief Economist of the Bank of International Settlement, wrote a famous paper which he gave at Jackson Hole in 2004 saying the elasticity of the, of the economic system uh, in the um, G7 is being stretched to breaking point, becoming highly pro-cyclical because what's happening is, is that the longer this process goes on of asset prices rising and credit worthiness terms dropping and that, that giving you the confidence to do another round of lending and securitization issuance means you then drop your credit worthiness terms again. You, know, you just get bubble effects and we must do something to constrain the growth of all of this. At the very least, we must work out what we should do if the, um, potentially if there was um, a bank run and at the very least we should start actually preemptively raising interest rates. And, of course, he was mocked and laughed at uh, by the central bankers, um, who would have included Mervyn King. Anybody from the Bank of England here? No, this is what I can say what I like. Um, anyway, look, we're drawing to the close because I'm only given 20 minutes, and uh, I've got more I want to say. Um, uh, the, shadow, the shadow banking system, in effect, was like a, was like a 19th century banking system. Um, uh, you had... Um, $23, $23 trillion worth, $23 trillion worth of, of securitized investment vehicles, a repo market which was hooked into it of $10 trillion, and no lender of last resort. Think about that, eh? Pause for a second and think about that. The scale of debt exceeded US GDP by 50%, but there was no lender of last resort. No system of deposit insurance. And under Basel II, and the banks have been delegated um, the uh, right to assess themselves what the risk weighting was and thus how much capital they should support. So the, um, <laughs> amazingly, in the spring of 2007, Northern Rock was able to argue that it had too much capital. And it paid a dividend. 
months before it collapsed. That was the terms of Basel II. So when you hear Gordon Brown and uh, Alistair Darling saying they want more capital in the banks to be agree in the G20, to become a part of a Basel III, and that we're go- and the regulators are going to make sure it doesn't happen again, I think you have to side with the governor in this argument and say it is delusional. Uh, so you, um, where do we go now? I mean, Lehman's, and what Lehman showed, of course, that without a lender of last resort, um, you are the, uh, uh, a 21st century investment bank was in exactly the same place as a 19th century commercial bank, fantastically vulnerable to a bank run. <clears throat> but a bank run not by retail depositors, who actually are rather slow to act, one of the kind of amusing things they say in banking is that you're more likely to um, get a divorce than change your bank, and you're, you're certainly more likely to divorce than engage in a bank run. You need to be terribly terrified to do that, not in the professional market. If the professionals think that you, uh, if they can see the haircuts in the repo market, um, they've got a good idea of your balance sheet structure, they've got a very good sense of actually whether you're, gonna, of whether you're credit worthy and if they don't like it, they don't lend to you and if they don't lend to you, you can't refinance your balance sheet and as, as at the peak people like these investment banks were refinancing not 10%, not 20% but a third of their balance sheet every bloody day that's a problem, isn't it? and there's no lender of, la- of last resort and there's no one telling you how much capital you require and there's no deposit insurance for the professionals just imagine what we were doing and think about the political economy of how those people bought that in London and New York. Think of Gordon Brown making a speech on January the 26th, uh, June the 26th, just days before he became Prime Minister in 2007 at the Mansion House, glorying in, in, the, in the innovativeness of the City of London, these wonderful financial products, and how the rest of Britain had better follow suit. Just think about the stupidity of saying that. Just think about it. Six weeks later, Northern Rock couldn't refinance its balance sheet either. Couldn't flog it, couldn't sell the residential mortgage-backed securities because the interbank market had seized up because the haircuts were too big in the repo market. Of course, and there was no lender of last resort either, was there? Either in London or New York. So one of the things that had to happen in the days after, after, after Lehman went was that Goldman's and J.P. Morgan Chase had to turn themselves into bank holding companies so they could actually get cash, unlimited cash, from the Fed. And they had to get and received recapitalization, and they had to receive, uh, in, in, um, in Goldman's case, $13 billion uh, from the TARP um, for the credit default swaps that it, that it held at AIG and wouldn't have been settled otherwise. And it was able to issue $23 billion worth of, of um, debt that the FDIC bought. I mean, my God, Goldman Sachs is a ward of the state. And Lloyd Blackfine is going to pay himself over $50 million this year. I mean, why aren't you more angry? And you have to put up with Lord Griffiths, Lord Brian Griffiths, opining that it's all perfectly fair. Nothing could be fairer than that. Eh? That's what he said. What do you think about it? Why aren't you protesting about that as much as um, Griffin on the, uh, on the on question time tonight? Come on. Um, so we are... Um, we, we, uh, and remember, you know, the governor of the Bank of England is not a man who makes wild statements. He's a central banker. He prides himself on actually not saying things that are inflammatory. When he says the moral hazard is most extraordinary in modern times, he bloody means it. And he sees it up front every day. And most of you don't. 
And the minute that you know anything about it, you just, your draw jobs. Your draw just jobs at what's taking place. Now, what are we going to do about it? Well, um, and I've got to, uh, uh, um, let me just quickly come to an end. I mean, uh, Lord Turner wants more capital in the banks. Right. He wants the, he wants the derivative markets, uh, all that trade to take place in organized exchanges so it can't be pegged to a particular um, security but is actually a transparent derivative that actually has a value that because it's marketable in an exchange where the counterparty is understood and is freely bought and sold and liquid, you know what it's worth. Correct. He wants, um, and I, he doesn't want this, but I think that if, he's going to, if we're going to go down this road, credit rating agencies, I mean, I'm the, that's not a damn story, credit rating agencies, I mean, uh, how could it possibly be that 60,000 structured investment vehicles had um, AAA ratings and only three corporate bonds, eh? Uh, jaw-dropping, except when you look at actually the amount of revenue that Moody's and uh, Standard & Poor's were getting from rating these things, it becomes very clear. Some very rich men and women were running Moody's and, and, uh, and S&P, and again, that's a whole story that's going to come tumbling out, I think. And we can no longer delegate the rating of things as complicated as that to credit agencies, given the, con the conflicted way they approach it. Um, we can't allow, I mean, because what was happening was that regulators were accepting the risk weighting uh, of the banks, which the, the itself they paid for from the credit rating agencies, to judge how much capital they had to hold. I mean, we got to unscramble all that, haven't we? Of course we have. Um, so, you know, it's not unscramblable in a timely way whilst removing the $4.5 trillion worth of guarantees, because otherwise the whole system will just seize. We, the taxpayer, have to stand beneath this for some years ahead. And the open question is, are you happy about doing that and these guys walking away with 5, 10, 50 million pound bonuses as, they, as you do it? One of the most disgraceful and grotesque bargains in the history, in modern times, arguably, arguably since, the, since the Enlightenment. I can't think of a, of a, of a, of a bargain like that. I mean, it makes, it makes French tax farming in the 17th century look like a vicar's tea party. Um, <laughs> So that's the deal that we're offered by the British Backers Association and by the American Backers Association. Thank you very much, but no thank you. Um, now, um, uh, uh, Mervyn King says it's obvious that it's all delusional. He's correct. Let's break the things up. And, he, and I actually think that um, uh, you know, there is a lot of opposition to breaking the things up because if you do it in one country and they're not done in other countries, then actually there'll be a lot of people you know, um, running these risks in London. Um, and we won't be able to share in the party and we could have some contingent risk here in London. So, you know, why do that? Well, actually, if Deutsche Bank want to do it and the Americans want to do it, then we'd, we, we just tell the Americans and the, and the, and the Germans, if Deutsche Bank uh, or Bank of America get into trouble trading in derivatives in London, that's your lookout because we can't write the check here in London. We'll write the check for, on sterling assets written by sterling-based banks, but nothing else. Um, and I think that... I think that um, uh, I, the, the Adair says, and I've discussed this endlessly with him, he says that uh, actually you can't draw the boundaries between proprietary trading, which is you know, dodgy, then derivatives, which you know, actually great multinationals require to, to hedge flows of income in the foreign exchange markets or 
their, their kind of interest, the, their cash positions where they've got, where they're taking positions on interest rates. They, they, need the, they need this capacity and actually banks need to be able to supply it to them legitimately. And then, you know, I, are you going to stop securitization really, which is rather a good innovation? And actually, why shouldn't there be proper diversification of uh, assets in one security? Isn't that rather a good idea which you can buy and sell? The problem was it was just done too much and it wasn't rated properly and there wasn't enough capital behind it. They get that right and this, and this, uh, this all works. Well, my view is, is that um, uh, I'm not going to make a, uh, uh, I'm not going to make a, um, a kind of a call between Mervyn's position and Adair's position. But I do say this, that we cannot as a country have three institutions, Barclays Bank, HSBC, and uh, RBS, all of which have got balance sheets bigger than our GDP, and another, uh, Lloyd's, which has nearly got a balance sheet as big as IGP. They are just too big to fail. And the asymmetry of the, of the, of the risk-reward uh, is just not right. I think in the UK we've got to have a standard oil moment. We've got to break these banks up. And once they're broken up horizontally, um, if they want to do some proprietary trading or some risky stuff, fine because they'll all be so small that it won't matter if there's a run on one of them. It won't present systemic risk. And I wouldn't actually get into the argument that John Kay gets into and Adair and Mervyn get into. I just want them to be smaller. And I want, at the same time, I'd build some new banking institutions that actually serve uh, the interests of British business, British commerce, the knowledge sector, um, the business startups, um, and, British, and, and British infrastructure needs. I would actually have root and branch reform of the British financial system. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Will. If there's anybody from the Treasury here who needs a little bit of, um, you know, holding hands afterwards, I, I'll, I'll do it for you, okay? Because none of you, none of you owned up. I know there's at least four Treasury officials in the audience. There you go, uh, Andrew Gamble. Thank you, Mick. Uh, well, follow that, really. Um, the one of my favourite stories from the uh, the crisis is, is uh, what. Uh, what was actually put on uh, Bernard Madoff's uh, website. It said, uh, in an era of faceless organizations owned by other equally faceless organizations, Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC, harks back to an earlier era in the financial world. The owner's name is on the door. Clients know that Bernard Madoff has a personal interest in maintaining the unblemished record of value, fair dealing, and high ethical standards that has always been the firm's hallmark. <laughs> well, uh, That's still there. That. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bernie. Oh, now, the financial crash of 2008. I'm, I'm going to talk more about the, uh, some of the politics of this. Um, the... Uh, I think one of the interesting questions is uh, um, we're, st we're still living uh, very close to these events and uh, one of the issues is how, just how big a crisis uh, was this and how different from recent financial crises like the dot-com in 2000, the Asian financial crisis in 1997. Well, Alan Greenspan um, seemed to be in no doubt about this. He's described it as a once-in-a-century event. But you won't uh, 
you don't have to read very much in the, in the press at the moment to feel that uh, there's a mood around that actually perhaps, uh, uh, perhaps the worst is over, perhaps uh, that the signs of recovery are uh, increasing, that uh, markets are turning up, uh, bankers' bonuses are certainly turning up, and uh, so maybe, maybe this was all a bad dream, that what, what happened a year ago, and that we're going back to, uh, 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 going back to business as usual. Um, the the uh, financial crisis was so last year, but the uh, but there's another view which um, um, nasty pessimists like Nouriel Roubini keep peddling that the uh, the worst may still be to come, and and even if if it's not the worst that's still to come, uh, what we are seeing are uh, and what we can expect are a whole series of aftershocks from the earthquake that hit last year. Um, and that's the, it's, it's that basis on which uh, many observers think this is going to be a long, painful slog getting out of this and that the comparison has to be with the 1970s and the 1930s, similar periods of decade-long restructuring which, uh, with lots of conflicts and lots of pain, um, and lots of uh, false starts and new departures and ups and, uh, ups and downs. That doesn't mean that this crisis is going to be like the 1930s or like the 1970s. There are a lot of very particular uh, features of it. Um, and partly the, 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 the reason for making this judgment is just how big this... Uh, to look at the size of this crisis, it's the events themselves, it's the, the scale, the sort of things that Will's been talking about, the number of financial institutions which were in trouble. It's also the location of this crisis, the fact that it was in the, the heartlands of finance in, in uh, um, London and, and New York. It, it's also the, the dispersion, the ripple effects which went out so that... Uh, uh, even though some countries looked as though they were avoiding the effects at first, gradually all countries have been affected, although, of course, the impact has been uneven. It's not a single crisis. It's a series of national... It's experienced as a series of national crises and national responses. A second, uh, a second way of judging the scale of these events is the response of... Uh, of governments, the blizzard of policy measures that were uh, the bailouts, the nationalisations, the fiscal stimuli, the interest rates at zero, the quantitative easing, Hank Paulson getting up and announcing the uh, nationalisation of some of the biggest banks in America. I mean, these are extraordinary events. I mean, the, 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 it represented the return of a state in a very big way, um, the overturning of a lot of the orthodoxies that had dominated the, uh, the 80s and the 90s. Um, and uh, the, the speed of it, uh, you can judge the size of the crisis by the speed of the reaction. It's, the, uh, it's when the unthinkable suddenly gets thought and when things that were out of bounds suddenly get done. It's, uh, it's like uh, Sidney Webb, um, well known to you all here, that uh, Sidney Webb in, was a minister in the ill-fated Labour government that uh, was in office during the, the great crash and uh, 
when the, the government fell and the national government came in, the national government pledged to, uh, um, to prevent devaluation of, uh, of sterling. Um, one of the first things it did as soon as the fleet uh, mutinied at Invergordon was actually to take the pound off gold, suspend the gold standard. And Sidney Webb said rather plaintively, nobody told us we could do that. And uh, there's something about, again, this, the, 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 the way this, this crisis has hit that reflects that. And then the, the consequences. As I say, the, the crisis has been experienced as a series of national crises, uh, national debates. There are different narratives, different solutions being canvassed. In Britain, one of the most extraordinary things to witness in the course of the last year has been the way in which the banking, cri uh, the, uh, the banking crisis has transmuted into a fiscal crisis, into a crisis of public spending. So this has become the whole focus of public debate and the, uh, uh, the banking crisis has been relatively forgotten. The, um, and certainly what has happened because of those extraordinary measures that were taken uh, a year ago is that the financial crisis was staved off. Ben Bernanke, the one thing that he was absolutely con uh, sure that he was not going to allow was a repeat of the 1930s. But in preventing a repeat of the 1930s, a new set of problems has been bequeathed, the deficits and the, uh, the, the, these, huge, um, these huge fiscal imbalances and it's made the urgency of growth and a return to growth huge because only in a, in a rapidly growing economy again are these are the scale of the debts which have been occurred even remotely thinkable which is why all the political parties um, have to believe in this country have to believe that there is going to be a very rapid return of growth and uh, finally because Time is short. The, think about some of the political consequences. And I know Dan is going to talk about some aspects, but it seems to me there's a, there's a, domestic, there's a domestic side to this and there's an international side. There's, in, in crises as severe as this, it always leads to uh, heightened social struggles because it brings to the fore who gains and who loses. And this is... This is about ordinary citizens. It's also, of course, about governments. It's, it's not a generally a good time to be an incumbent government. And uh, we've already seen uh, changes in government in, in Japan, in the United States, and uh, um, no doubt in this country next year. But, but not every country, not in every country is this the case. I mean, Germany has bucked the trend with Angela Merkel being restored. And that reinforces the point that we have to think of the crisis in terms of that it has an uneven impact. And it doesn't mean that there's one set of outcomes that can be predicted from it. But, uh, and, uh, th but there's also, and in this, it's very relevant to this country, that uh, we're in a kind of phony war in which... Uh, people are becoming aware of the, of the fiscal crisis that is looming, but uh, there's been no real pain yet. There's been the beginnings, but the real pain is to come, and very difficult times look ahead. And quite how this is going to play in the 
political system is uh, unclear. And finally, uh, I do think that the international consequences of this crisis are profound, and it's probably what uh, these will take time to unfold. Um, but I think the the new importance of the G20, the rise of China and India, many of these changes are not complete, but major. Uh, a major shift of direction has been, uh, been signalled. And I think when historians look back in 50 or 100 years, assuming there's still a planet to look back from, the, uh, they will actually see the, the events around this time as enormously significant for the, uh, the changing balance in the, uh, in the global economy and in the international state system. Thanks very much. Uh, I, I think that's a perfect introduction now to, uh, to, to Danny to conclude the presentations from the platform before we then go into, uh, into Q&A. Danny, over to you. Thank you. Um, and thank you to the previous speakers for so well laying out what the scenario is that we need to take in the discussion going forwards. Now, I don't have to remind you, the topic this evening is a year after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Where does global capitalism go now? And what I want to do in my uh, 15 minutes or so of remarks is to try and inject a little bit of this, of the globality into the discussion. Will Hutton has already waxed eloquent to you about the shadow banking system, the US and the UK. He's talked about the cathedral of debt. In fact, sometimes I think he has been, although he exhorts all of you to be angrier, sometimes I think he is angry enough for all the rest of us combined. <laughs> and in fact, I think sometimes that the danger is, the way he goes on, and he talks about how the 377 men and women on such and such a trading floor are receiving bonuses of millions of pounds each year, that might actually be encouragement for some of you LSE students <laughs> to, to plunge into that pit of evil and iniquity that is the shadow banking system. Um, and Andrew has very kindly talked about the aftershocks from the earthquake that hit last year, which is where I want to take us forwards from. At the end of Andrew's presentation, he he referred ominously to the profound international consequences that we don't actually fully appreciate yet. But in thinking about these international consequences, I hope that uh, in discussing that, I get to inject a little bit of good news into this evening's discussion, that we don't all go home thinking, let me find those treasury people. So. When Lehman Brothers collapsed over a year ago, it was the largest bankruptcy on record. Almost $650 billion of assets effectively vanished overnight. The other 800-pound gorilla in the room at that time was AIG, and AIG's assets were even higher. As you know, in the event, Lehman Brothers was allowed to go under, but AIG kept on going with hundreds of billions of pounds, if not more, in federal money guarantees. And when all of this was happening, the rest of us, who weren't ourselves investment bankers and financiers, but who had you know, real jobs, like teaching at the LSE, we worried about other things. 
we worried about the global fear that was taking hold in the world marketplace. People then were forecasting declines of up to 15% in industrial production, that world stock markets would collapse by 50%, that there would be a 40% fall in world trade, that the situation would be at least as bad as the Great Depression 70 years ago. And you know what? For the first six months after Lehman Brothers, it seemed like we were going to be worse than the Great Depression 70 years ago. Every single pessimistic prediction had to be revised downwards. The collapse in, in the world economy seemed total. And what was interesting, as a number of people have referred to, is that the implications of this collapse in the world economy was not uniform. In fact, rather bizarrely, the countries that were running trade deficits, the countries that had been most free about plunging into the shadow banking system, the countries that had pursued the hardest, the capitalist road that we now in retrospect say was wrong, it seemed like those countries were going to get off relatively lightly. Yes, U.S. production, U.K. employment were all going to fall, but at the time, in the worst of this period, many of us, from looking at the numbers, thought that the impact would be a lot worse on the rest of the world. Who in particular? Well, the East Asian economies, who seemed to have been doing the right things. They had been saving, they had been running healthy, productive economies, they had not been, each of each citizen there had not maxed out 13 credit cards. They were running healthy trade surpluses, but it looked like they were the ones who were going to be worst hit in this global downturn. Rather peculiar turn of events, but the, as, as always, economists took a couple of seconds and then thought of an explanation for this. The reason was the particularly damaging collapse in world trade. Those countries that were running the virtuous life, who were exporting more, were, in this interpretation, relying on excess consumption in the West to continue to drive economic growth in their economies. And with the more than proportional fall in world trade, it was those countries, the countries who had been virtuous, that were going to be hardest hit. So the Asian thrift economies that, in one widely accepted interpretation, had contributed centrally to the global savings glut that provided fuel for the shadow banking system to really skyrocket. It was those economies who were, in one interpretation, partly to blame for this global crisis, partly to blame for providing the fuel that other people lit and that financial regulators put on cheerleader outfits to cheer on. It was those countries that were going to be in trouble. But then something peculiar happened from the beginning of this year. Well, at first it was nothing peculiar. The US, US industrial production did collapse by about 12% in the nine months following Lehman Brothers, as expected. And again, as expected, emerging Asia did indeed see a sharp decline in industrial production through the beginning of 2009 until about June. From June, rather bizarrely, while US output continued to deteriorate, 
industrial production in emerging Asia began to recover. By as early as May 2009, industrial production in emerging Asia actually had burst through its previous 2008 high, and by last month had rocketed to exceed that earlier peak by more than 11%. So to summarize, actually, the predictions of the most pessimistic prognosticators had not been borne out. As of last month, since the beginning of 2007, industrial production in emerging Asia is up 26%, while that in the U.S. is down 14%. So this seems to be a rather surprising turnaround, and on the one hand, it is good news. But should it have been so surprising? Well, I would I would argue not, and I've argued this uh, in the face of rather severe skepticism for the last six months. But I, I would argue not. And the reason rests in the historical record. If we had studied the historical record appropriately, we should not at all have been surprised by this. So let me just give you two observations. The last two times the United States economy was in recession was 1991 and 2001. And in those two those two years, East and Southeast Asia ended up growing, in absolute terms, by between two and twenty. Times the change in U.S. GDP. China, although in per capita income terms, is only one twentieth that of the United States. China alone grew by three times what the U.S. economy did. So, in times when U.S. when international financial crises have been concentrated in the West, emerging Asia, as now, seems to have gotten along okay. And you could argue that back then. Emerging Asia was even more export reliant on the United States economy, compared to now, where incomes there are already much higher, and the demand for foreign goods that appropriately that much greater. The other data point here is to think about what happened 10 years ago, as a number of my colleagues have referred to. 10 years ago, the Asian financial crisis hit East Asia. And while this evening we have discussed the implications of the Asian financial crisis on Russia and on U.S. bonds and on long-term capital management, it seems to me appropriate to look at what the Asian financial crisis did to Asia, because after all, that was the epicenter for that financial crisis. And sure enough, things looked bad at first. Asset values plunged by 70 percent. Real incomes fell by up to 35 percent in some countries. Currencies depreciated by up to 50 percent against the U.S. dollar. Millions were thrown into unemployment. Things looked really bad. But here's the thing: ten years after that, that region recovered quickly, and its accumulated underperformance relative to pre-crisis trend is actually proportionally less than half that of the world overall. So this brings me to my conclusion. If I may take three minutes to conclude. Perhaps these just indicate that the larger force of economic change here, as far as the global economy is concerned, is not international financial crises. No matter how large they seem in the wake of the Lehman Brothers collapse, no matter how important they might be for each of us who works in the shadow of Canary Wharf, instead, what is much more important is a longer-term shift in the distribution of global economic activity, and. My reading of the evidence, from what I've just told you, 
and from other calculations that I've done, is that that shift continues, it is profound, and it accelerates every time we have a crisis in the West. And this shift is doing a lot of good in the world. China has single-handedly brought hundreds of millions of people out of extreme poverty. These people are now poised on the point of middle-class levels of consumption and production. And as this shift continues to occur and continues to bring the world's economic center of gravity further eastwards, this is actually good for the world. That the West take stock of this, continue to perform well, but recognize that the world is flattening in this important way, is actually going to be a, lead to a profound improvement in the welfare of humanity. And the Lehman Brothers collapse is just one small step in that longer-term important move. Thank you. Okay, thank you to all of the three speakers. Uh, Will wants us to be angry and called for the breakup of the banking system, at least in this country. Andrew said we haven't felt enough pain yet. And uh, Danny said it may be a good thing in the long term. Um, I think that raises a whole range of questions and issues. If the people with the microphones could make themselves known to me, and I'd like to see the first hand rise from the floor or up there. Can we take the first question? There's a gentleman here and a gentleman at the back. Yeah, I'll take that gentleman here. Is there somebody over here? Yeah, the gentleman at the back. Yeah, whoever. Yeah, yeah please, sir. If you could use a, speak into the mic and speak loud. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. Uh, Great, wasn't it? I enjoyed it enormously myself. So. <laughs> what we have from Front is the notion of this self perpetuating system of leverage that the banks were in this casino. One can ask a simple question who did Northern Rock lend money to and what happened with that money after all? And if you look um, at the real estate market, for example, in the UK, then equal to the system of policy that one saw in the city.
take a couple. Of, who, who's got the mic? A uh, gentleman in the middle here, please. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Um, hi, Mick. Bud Hall. Nice Oxford. to meet you, Bud. Yeah, good to see you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no favoritism, believe me. Yeah, none. I, I grabbed the mic. It's my fault. I uh, enjoyed the presentation. I didn't hear any gentleman talk about a couple of things. Um, Hutton talked about it a bit, one of these issues. Nothing mentioned about market-to-market -market accounting, one of the innovations that required write-downs of securities. The, the vulture funds are making a great deal of money right now, proving we're written down a little too quickly. Last bid in the sea liquid market, at the time, a lot of uh, this was going down with Lehman and uh, AIG uh, bailouts was uh, Merrill dumping CDOs on the market at, to trying to find on market price, uh, and the discovery mechanism turned up 22 cents on the dollar, yeah? which is absurd. So everybody marks down the balance sheet to 22 cents on the dollar, and, and sometimes we have uh, imaginary problems as a result. The second issue uh, raised a little bit by Hutton. Asymmetric monetary policy, okay? Um, are, I'm going to say something unpopular. Aren't mass democratic publics complicit in this when they demand the central bank slash interest rates and cheap credit at precisely the wrong time in the credit cycle uh, and even the hint of a recession? Don't we have to re-educate mass democratic publics that uh, we misread Keynes? He actually told us how to get out of a depression we can't apply Keynesian demand management to uh, flood the system with credit uh, when everybody who's already creditworthy has a loan. Okay, right. Okay. I'm going to take those two questions. Can I add one final question my own to, to Danny? Do you think the United States is going to be happy about this shift of power, Danny? Um, you know, I don't want to go into, go into too much IR theory here, but hegemons generally don't like declining. So happiness for who? the United States as well. Will, why don't you start on some of those questions and we'll try and pick up some more as we go around. I'll be very quick. Um, yeah. Good points all. I mean, I, um, Germany, as a matter of, you know, uh, we don't know yet what the, I think we get the third quarter GDP numbers in the UK later this week, don't we? Um, uh, is it tomorrow? I, um, but I, um, at the moment, um, the peak to trough fall in GDP in the UK is 5.6%, and in Germany um, it's 65 or 7 So the actual peak to trough fall in GDP has been higher in Germany than the United Kingdom. Um, and actually the labour market in Britain um, has been very well behaved, actually. I mean, the, the actual fall in employment um, and rise unemployment, uh, given that fall in GDP, has been uh, actually rather... You know, the German, Germany and British experience is not dissimilar, but then the, the Germans actually pay for labour hoarding in a way that we don't in the UK. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not certain that I accept the, the, the premise, and that then gets me onto the. I mean, I, I, I do think British um, macroeconomic policy has been um, very successful, actually, uh, had it been adopted by Angela Merkel, um, the, uh, the, the worst of the in German GDP might have been averted. I mean, I, I think the, the combination of quantitative easing, um, you know, negligible interest rates, and the big fiscal deficit, and then the, the timely targeted and temporary cut in value-added tax have actually helped to put a floor on the performance of the UK economy. I'm much more concerned, and here I guess you and I would see eye to eye, I'm much more concerned what's going to happen in the next five, six, seven years. 
I'm, I, I think the outlook for Germany is much more propitious than the outlook for the United Kingdom. Um, I mean, Britain does not have an innovation system to speak of. It's relied on financial services and actually buoyant credit and, and, and asset prices too much. And I think there's big restructuring problems that confront the United Kingdom. On the question of leverage, um, I, uh, frankly, the returns in, the, in um, being a, a partner in a hedge fund or a partner in a, a private equity house or being a senior investment banker um, exceeded actually even the gains from leverage in the British property market. So, you know, LSE graduates who went that way were doing, I think, making the right choice. On asymmetric monetary policy, um, I thought it was a very, um, I mean, I, I mean, one of, there's so many culprits in this crisis, in them, but I mean, one of them plainly was that the, the central bankers did not um, take any action to take away the punch bowl, in the famous words of uh, an American central bankers, now I forget. Um, but the, um, when the party is at its, beginning to really warm up, I mean, the, um, and Alan Greenspan had this view that um, you couldn't, it was the point of issue for him and Bill White actually in Jackson Hole in 2004. Um, Alan Greenspan said, I'm not clear enough to spot an asset price bubble, and best to pick up the pieces afterwards. Um, and uh, William White said, it's obvious that we're in the middle of an asset price bubble because everything's moving up at the same time and well departed from its fundamental value. You must do something to constrain things. Well, in the world of efficient markets, um, the, the central bankers were unwilling, actually, to take the preemptive action. And actually, I think that um, there was sufficient central bank independence amongst the ECB, the Fed, and the Bank of England that had they actually intellectually been less persuaded that they shouldn't act, and, and intellectually they should have acted, they could have acted. So I suspect the asymmetric um, monetary policy has less to do with... Um, ill-educated Western publics and more to do with a bad intellectual mistake by central bankers. And your point about mark-to-mark accounting, absolutely. It made the, it made the haircuts um, faster, quicker, and it, it, it created the circumstances for the professionals to organize their bank runs. Your question was whether the U.S. will take kindly to the scenario that I've sketched going forwards. The, in a nutshell, the answer would have to be no, but then the more important question is what the U.S. intends to do about this. We might well have invaded Iraq with the collaboration of some friends on this side of the Atlantic, but it's very unlikely that the United States is going to take up arms against all the surplus countries in the world, China, Japan, Germany. Um, the surplus countries in the world are the countries that happen also to have taken the greatest quantity of U.S. Treasury debt, have lent the U.S. money. Now, we, everyone knows that the China and Japan are now the world's number one and two holders of U.S. Treasury. In, um, but number three happens to be the United Kingdom. And um, so while the U.S. continues to borrow heavily from the rest of the world, it's power has, going to be, has got to be circumscribed. So, but, you know, it's a, it's a long process mm. for when even a country overtakes another in terms of raw size to when you might, in, in the words of IR theory, think about one hegemon being displaced by another in a, in a pattern of polarity in the world. The last time this happened, remember, was between the United Kingdom and the United States 
The United Kingdom was for, well, most of recorded history, the, the world leader, the world leading country. And then in 1872, the United States overtook the United Kingdom in raw GDP. But even then, the United Kingdom limped along for almost a hundred years mm. and continued to be the world leader until basically the end of the Second World War, when the U.S. became the preeminent economy, preeminent state. Now, I, can't, I don't know if you know, that's the kind of scenario mm. Mick and I are thinking about when we say uh, switch in power from hegemon in a unipolar world. But it's the only previous experience we've had with the kind of switch in world leadership. And so will the United States take to this in a very friendly way? Not at all. The fact that it is the world leader now and that its currency is the world's reserve currency gets it all kinds of perks. It gets to borrow cheaply from the rest of the world. When it increases the money supply, all the rest of the world that holds U.S. currency basically pay an inflation tax to the United States. It shifts risk from its consumers to the rest of the world when trade contracts are denominated in U.S. dollars huge amount of benefits that come from being the hegemon in this kind of world. The United States is not going to hand this over lightly. But actually, I would like to get your view on this, if you're allowed to. I, I, I agree with you, Danny, completely. And I wish somebody would turn their phone off. Um, okay, uh, Danny, I agree with you. I, I, I do agree with you on this issue, because uh, you're the speaker and I'm the chair. Um, <laughs> I disagree. Can I disagree? Oh, you can disagree, Will. Yes, we, I think we it, encourage I think that, that here. I think that I have a, and Danny knows my view on this, but um, uh, the, the really important point in finance and trade is to have a convertible currency. And remember, it's not convertible. And it will remain uh, non-convertible uh, as long as there is a one-party rule in China. Um, because with a savings ratio of 40%, you couldn't admit convertibility and, uh, and relax capital controls because you have an exodus of capital from China. China's middle class would take its money to Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, and all around the region. Uh, and it would actually threaten uh, the whole basis of rule in China. This, uh, just the stimulus package that took place, two-thirds of the stimulus was done, by, uh, the, was done through the Chinese banking system and that was done because, of course, savings in China are locked into China because there's no convertibility and there's capital controls. China can only become a hegemonic power if it becomes able to, uh, if, the, if the Communist Party can manage um, the internal settlement that would permit convertibility. And in my view, that demands democracy. As a consequence, there will not be a transfer of power from the United States to China for the foreseeable future. Can we all at this point disagree with you? Yeah, I, 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 I've now stimulated... Andrew, I think you want to come in on this yeah. to disagree with all of us, don't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Andrew. Well, I mean, no, it seems to me Bring that... What, oh. Just quickly. Yeah. It seems to me that what's going to happen is... Uh, um, it, is going to take, uh, it is going to take a very long time for China to supplant the U.S. The, uh, China is in a very uh, different position to, in relation to the United States today than the United States was to Britain in, say, 1920. And um, so I think it's going to take a, a, a very long time, and for some of the reasons that Will has said. But I think what, what makes the next period so interesting is precisely you, you can imagine a number of different scenarios for the role of the United States. And, uh, and it depends a lot upon the, uh, the strength of growth in the, in, in, in the world economy and 
the, uh, the way in which, whether the United States is able to uh, uh, reestablish its, uh, its, its position of dominance or whether it's, uh, it goes down a path of, uh, of sharing, uh, sharing more power with some of the other leading, uh, leading economies. And if that is, uh, if that is not done, the, the scenarios are much gloomier about what the consequences are then in terms of the policies which countries adopt and the, and the possibility of fragmentation of uh, world economic and political relationships. So it seems to me there is a spectrum of possible scenarios which we can, uh, we can plot from this point. Okay, uh, sorry, I've got a number of hands coming up. There's a gentleman up there. Yeah. Yes, um, the when, when you invest in shares, normally um, the, 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 the ratio that goes to the shareholders is such that, for example, if the profit doubles, the shareholders get most of that money because they have, they have sort of risked their capital. I invested in people like J.P. Morgan in about 1990, and I got out in 1999 because I could see essentially it was a mug's game because essentially... The shareholders, uh, the directors were not protecting the interests of the shareholders. The money was going to the, uh, the traders, to the people speculating. And they, of course, couldn't be making any of the so-called profits they were making until such time as, uh, so unless they actually had the capital behind them from the shareholders. I, I calculate that basically that um, today, if you say there's roughly about 25,000 bankers who've been responsible for most of the shambles, and you say that basically you say the amount put in by the US and UK governments, maybe a couple of others, might work out to be about two and a half billion, two, sorry, 2,500 billion. That works out to be about $100 million or 100 million pounds, whichever way you take it, on uh, uh, that's been taken from each, uh, sorry, that has been lost by these people. I find it astonishing that no government has as yet proposed that we need to claw that back first of all, before we turn around and say, right, we're going to pay you out these, um, these so-called bonuses, because, frankly, these people have not made this money. Um, I don't know what Will Hutton's view is on this, but it seems to me that when we're discussing the question about a year after the collapse of Lehman's, you know, where does global capitalism go now, on the, on the level of the bankers or the so-called, uh, on the level of the bankers, nothing has changed at all. It's simply a casino um, I, I certainly agree with Danny Kua that certainly if you look at the world, uh, world economy that, ch that China and Japan, etc., have, have actually, sorry, China in particular and other Southeast Asian countries have actually helped us out of this situation. But that's nothing to do with, uh, with other than that their economies have been roaring heads. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, there's a gentleman over here, and then I'll take a lady in the middle there. Could you pass the microphone? Okay. Uh, gentlemen here, the, if you could make the question a little bit quicker, that would be helpful. Um, I wondered if the panel could go into a little bit more um, about the regulatory uh, sort of reaction. And um, because at the moment, I mean, all that we've had is essentially a reaction to pumping liquidity, which in the long term, as most people or analysts view, is, is just going to exacerbate any kind of problem. We need to have a new framework, macroprudential or whatever you, whatever you want to call it, but a new sort of framework. But arguably, the impetus and all of the um, energy behind that has gone um, and it's been lost in the last sort of three, three to six month rally that we've seen in the markets, business as usual. Um, and I'd also like to say I am or was and would like to be angry, but um, any voices of protest by, by ordinary individuals at, you know, at the largesse uh, that's gone through the financial system seems to be ignored in part because of the regulatory capture that Mr. Hutton uh, mentioned earlier. 
So if we are to be angry, what can we do about it anyway? Thank you. Uh, yes, please. Um, um, China is a very strong country, but Germany is the world's greatest exporter, as she was in 1931. I'm, I am an economic historian, and I've looked how the arrivals of currencies like gold in 1871, uh, the return of gold in the late 1920s, and now the arrival of the euro, the effect they've had on the world economies. Should we not blame the German influence on the European Central Bank, as well as the bankers, for the very serious state of the world economy? The European Central Bank's decision, under pressure from Germany, to adopt very low interest rates, despite inflationary pressures, to get the euro off to a good start, caused nervous funds to flee to America. Then Jean-Claude Trichet's decision as president of the European Central Bank, again under pressure from Germany, to raise interest rates in 2007 and 2008, led to funds flowing back to the Eurozone and helped cause the banking crisis. And I'd like to direct that at the... Yeah, you've got somebody else to blame. That's yeah. Excellent. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, Andrew, do you want to have a go at any of those? I, I'm a, I'm a, uh, it can't be your... No, no, I, point taken, point yeah. taken. I, uh, yes. I just want to get some responses from the... Yeah. Yeah. From here. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I, I, I think the, the, uh, the central banks... Um, central banks do bear responsibility. There's no, uh, there's no question. I think the... the uh, um, the failure to spot uh, systemic risk um, is a uh, is a major regulatory uh, um, was a major regulatory failure of the last uh, of the last 20 years. Um, what the regulatory response should be, um, I think that uh, um, some of the things that Will was talking about at the end are, are, are that they would clearly need to be central. The, the real problem, it seems to me, the real political problem, is that nobody has, at this point, any sense of what alternative model would actually work. And the, the, uh, in that sense, this is, this is typical of this kind of, uh, of very deep crisis, that actually people are going to try lots of different things. There's going to be lots of policy experiments. Some things will work, some won't work. We can't actually expect uh, anyone to come along with a, with, a, with a blueprint which can just be sort of put down with an alternative model. Um, it's going to be, quite, I think, a long and, and bumpy road. I mean, and many people have pointed out that Keynes didn't write the general theory until 1936. The, uh, often the intellectuals come along and they provide rationalizations after the event which then become the basis for understanding some of the solutions to the, uh, to the problems that have emerged in practical policies. But there isn't, there, I don't think there's a shortcut. All we can do is, uh, is try and see uh, what regulatory responses will actually improve the situation and will certainly stop some of the things happening that have happened in the past. Well. Again, very quickly, I mean, I, <coughs> good interventions all. I mean, I, um, on this question of regulatory capture um, and what the regulatory framework would look like, I did try to um, sketch that a bit. And I echo what Andrew said. I mean, I, you know, you've got the shadow banking system, the overhang, the stunning overhang of it, um, when it's, you know, it grew effectively to 
I mean, creating fault swaps alone would come to world GDP. Um, all the derivatives, the, the volume of trade, I mean, the actual outstanding volume of derivatives, including interest rate swaps and the rest of it, is $800 trillion. 13 times, 14 times world GDP. And then you've got these securitized investment vehicles parked in tax haven, 23 trillion of that. You know, the overhang of that is, um, as Andrew said, is it, you know, it, it, impossible to sort out without an ongoing guarantee from Western taxpayers for interbank and repo markets. Otherwise, we just, you know, we know credit plays. And so we have to have a different bargain with the bankers. And, my, and I've told you what I think it should be. Um, and, uh, but it's taking a while for British politicians and, and Amer I mean, actually, uh, I, we criticise Gordon Brown for being, um, and Alistair Darling for being timid, but I have to tell you, I think Tim Geithner and President Obama are even more timid. Uh, I mean, one of the issues is that, you know, the way, and we watch Congress being bought by American health companies, insurance companies, American health companies over the uh, health reform. It's even more bought by American bankers and investment bankers. And, uh, you know, um, the buying of a democracy uh, in this way by self-interested uh, constituencies has a kind of shadow effect on the rest of the world that's very considerable. Um, <coughs> problematic. We have to declare independence from it. On the, on the central bankers, I don't think I'd go... I mean, central banks made the mistakes that the gentleman said in the, in the, uh, <coughs> in the stalls rather than the circle. Um, and uh, I don't think... I, I think you're being a trite nat conspiratorial, actually. Um, uh, uh, this, for me, it, this was a crisis... You know, that was minted in New York and London out of the shadow banking system, um, fueled, as Danny said, by uh, uh, the global imbalances from Asia. Yeah, you know, uh, and, uh, and I, uh, I don't think it was wrong for Trichet to tighten policy in, uh, in 07 and 08. I think actually it should be tightened in, in Britain and America too. So, you know, why should you make the same mistake as the Americans and the British made? And um, uh, lastly, this question, a very interesting point made by the man who sold the 1999. Lucien Babchuk, professor of uh, finance at Harvard, he's written a interesting paper. Do, do Google it. Um, he makes the point that actually um, shareholders um, didn't have any interest actually in um, controlling traders because actually, um, as long as they punted and made lots of money um, um, and the absolute pie was growing, then you didn't care that you got, you know, if it, the share that went to you was as little as 50% or, you know, a third. As long as it was growing year on year, you were happy. And if a thing went bust, um, well, you just lost that. Sh that that um, that was all that happened to you. Unlike a creditor um, who might have much more money involved. I mean, actually, it's a very interesting paper arguing that actually um, shareholders had no particular interest in reining in traders and senior executives. And actually, by selling in '99, you forwent four or five years of good growth in the sector. Um, you should have sold in 2004, 2005. But actually, your insight was to see that um, uh, um, that asking shareholders to control this lot um, was just not happening. Um, and that points to major corporate governance failures, as well as regulatory failures, financial journalist failures, credit agency failures, central bank failures, um, um, international regulating failures. I mean, my God, you name it. And um, they all failed. Um, but they failed, I want to repeat this, they failed because, you know, very rich men and women you know, set out to construct a, an architecture that enriched themselves enormously. And as long as the party was going, there was no particular need to blow the whistle. Now we're left with an overhang that could take a decade, two decades to sort out. Uh, Danny. 
Um, just La last word, I think. Just two quick comments. On the, the question about the regulatory reaction, why hasn't there been more of that? I think initially the policy reaction was um, had a motivation well articulated by Ben Bernanke, who suggested something along the lines of when the house is burning down, you don't you try and put down the put out the fire, you don't worry about building regulations. So the question I think for us and for the policy international policy community is have we put out enough of the fire now that we can start thinking of housing regulations again? And there I think opinion is divided. But to the extent that, you know, there are still people like well Will and others going out there and talking about how, you know, banks are too big to fail, then they're simply too big. You know, that that particular thread of thinking is still alive and I hope that we do continue that. The, I agree with Will that it seems a bit conspiratorial to think that it's Germany and uh, the European Central Bank that's to blame for the pattern of global capital flows that we've seen over the last two decades. Remember, for a lot of the, the recent history, central banks held on to a view of policy, something along the lines of inflation targeting. If inflation was high, you raised interest rates, if inflation low, you lowered interest rates. And for most of the last 30 most of the last three decades, inflation has been declining steeply, and the right thing for central banks to do at that point was to lower interest rates as well. And I think that was their thinking, rather than any of the more, more elaborate mechanisms you've described. Okay, I think I'll draw it to a halt then. I was actually going to ask you all one question. Do you think interest rates will remain low? The reason I want to have an answer to that question is because I'm one of the nine people who's been given a mortgage over the, last, uh, over the last year by HSBC, so I have a very strict, real interest in this one. You know, what, what have I bought here? But we could talk about that later on. Anyway, firstly, let me move photo thanks to the European Consortium for Political Research, ECBR. Um, uh, I was uh, chair of this wonderful organization for three years and on the executive committee, and it was a wonderful time, and thanks to all the people on ECPR who looked after me <laughs> more ways than one uh, and best wishes to my successor Professor Luciana Bardi from the University of Pisa carried this great organisation forward a, a, a European organisation thanks to you for coming along tonight especially the secret members of the Treasury <laughs> and even one or two of the bankers who came out this evening I thought that was very brave coming out in this audience but thanks again for coming along and final thanks move to our three speakers for, I think, presenting some complex and difficult issues in a comprehensible fashion. I think we could all join together to say thanks again. Thank you very much.